The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 19, 2022. Tensions in Eastern Europe are quickly rising as the U.S. and Western allies continue their diplomatic push to prevent a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia has amassed over 150,000 troops along the Ukrainian border and just this week allegedly launched a cyber attack on Ukrainian military, energy, and other critical computer networks. The cyber attack could potentially be utilized to support Russian military operations or even to create panic amongst the Ukrainian people and government to destabilize the country. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from November 2017, in which Brookings fellow Alina Polyakova spoke with Andrei Soldatov about Russian intelligence operations and surveillance. They also discussed Russia's perspective on the 2016 election meddling, Edward Snowden, and much more. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 11th, 2017. That's the voice of Russian independent journalist Andrei Soldatov, an expert on Russian intelligence operations and surveillance. Soldatov is the author of The New Nobility and The Red Web, two books on the Russian intelligence apparatus. My new colleague, Alina Polyakova, interviewed him in my office last week. They covered a lot of ground. It's everything you need to know about the Russian side of the 2016 elections, but we're afraid to ask. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 260, Andrei Soldatov on Russian Intel Ops and Surveillance. So podcast listeners, This week, our interview is not going to be conducted by me, and it's not a Brookings event. Uh, We are joined this week by special guest host Alina Polyakova, my new colleague in the foreign policy program at Brookings. Alina, welcome to the Lawfare podcast, and you've taken it over in a bloodless coup. Thanks, Ben. Uh, So this is the first in what we hope will be a bunch of podcasts that Alina is going to do on matters Russia. We figured that there is just a great deal of ignorance about uh, what has become a major adversarial power over the last few years. And uh, so, Alina, tell us a little bit about the project that you're going to be doing. So thanks, Ben, for letting me co-op the podcast uh, a couple of times over the next uh, couple of months. Well, I think uh, most listeners of Lawfare have been following 
the ongoing Russian investigation uh, in the United States, Russian interference in our own elections, and what that all means, uh, not just for the United States, but uh, for the West as we know it. Uh, but what we don't know much about is uh, how are the Russians really doing this? How are they uh, looking at the West? What do they think about all this? And on the other hand, what's really happening in Russian society? I think some people see Russia as this uh, monolith that's 10 feet tall, uh, but it's not. And that's what we're trying to, to get to the bottom of here. So uh, lots of Lawfare podcast listeners right now are saying, yeah, but who the heck is Alina Polyakova? So <laughs> why don't you answer that question for them? Uh, how did you get into this and, and, and who the heck are you? So I'm uh, a new fellow here at Brookings in the Foreign Policy Program. As you may uh, guess from my name, I'm from that part of the world, um, originally from Ukraine. Uh, have been working on trying to understand how the Russians run influence operations in Europe uh, for a number of years. And I thought it was uh, just about time now that the U.S. has been uh, the latest victim of Russian attacks for us to learn more about how the Russians do what they do. And tell us a little bit more about your guest. So Andrei Soldatov uh, is a very well-known uh, independent Russian journalist. And uh, as many people might know, it's not very easy to be an independent Russian journalist uh, in, in Russia today. He and his co-author, Irina Boragan, who didn't join us on the podcast, but is a co-author on all his work, uh, have started a sort of watchdog independent uh, website to try to understand what has been happening in the consolidation of Russian intelligence services um, and also how uh, the Russian state has not just cracked down political opposition, uh, but has really increased its surveillance operation in society. All right. And with that, here is the actual podcast. Uh, so, so Andre, uh, I think many of our listeners probably don't know much about you. Uh, you come to us from Moscow. We know that much. Uh, but tell us a bit more about, you know, you know, what's your story? Uh, to, what's your background? You're a Russian journalist working on surveillance issues for a long time. What is that like to be working on these issues in Russia today? How did you get into this uh, line of business in the first place? Uh, it's a tricky story, especially today. But actually, I started well, uh, in the 1990s, in the late 1990s. And uh, actually, my first topic was information technologies. But I became very bored with this stuff very quickly in two years. Uh, but sometimes it's really crazy to fly to Texas, for example, uh, to be shown into some room and uh, to be present at some presentation of a new printer or Xerox machine and then to fly back. Uh, so I wanted to do something more exciting, and uh, I thought that uh, to write about the Russian security services would be interesting, especially because in, in the late 1990s, uh, we got this new war in Chechnya, we got Vladimir Putin as Russian prime minister, so it was quite clear that security services would be a big topic, and it is. Uh, it's still a big topic, uh, but we needed to find, I mean, I mean uh, me and my colleague Irina Boragan, uh, we needed to find a way how to report about these things, especially, it's actually it's quite tricky because you need to have some connections or probably some sort of background and we didn't have this kind of things. Uh, so we uh, wanted to invent something 
maybe technical and uh, we came up with the idea of launching a special website which could be seen as a uh, kind of watchdog of Russian security services. But for that, we needed an inspiration. So we found this inspiration in uh, Federation of American Scientists secrecy project uh, run by Steve Aftergood. It's, it's an amazing project, actually. It's, uh, it's a great example of, uh, of making uh, the security services transparent. So we established our website, uh, agentour.ru, and uh, we've been writing together for this website and for many Russian independent newspapers for well for many years. And uh, but the problem is that in Russia after 2000, uh, always something happened to your publication. Well, editor could be fired, uh, newspaper could be uh, closed down. So. Uh, together we changed six or seven publications and only in the thousands. Uh, and you mean you had to switch uh, jobs so many times yes, as journalists? Yes, because always something happened to these publications. And finally, uh, by the end of the thousands, we, uh, we understood that uh, there was no room for this kind of thing to, uh, to do in Russia, I mean in Moscow. And uh, we were quite desperate what we can do. But um, uh, an American journalist, a friend of us, uh, suggested an absolutely crazy idea to try to write a book about the Russian security services for an American publisher. I never tried this before. I never written anything in English. And I thought, wow, it's absolutely crazy. But because you really, well, when you are really desperate, we c you can do whatever <laughs> it could uh, you, you can, and we finally we we, uh, we supplied a proposal, and thanks to some friends, eventually it ended up uh, on the table of uh, of an editor of uh, public affairs, uh, Peter Osnos, and he said, "Fine, let's try." So that's why uh, that was the way we got the, our first book, uh, the New Nobility, uh, published in 2010. Yeah, so I, sh I should mention, since you're bringing it up, um, you know, one, I think your background being a journalist focusing on the specific issue of Russian security services is really unique. Uh, you said, how can we bring more transparency to s s the security services to surveillance? You know, if we know anything about Russian surveillance uh, services or security services is that they're anything but transparent. So I know you have you don't have an easy job. You know, you were about to start talking about your second book, uh, but I, I thought I would introduce it instead and do it for you. So you published The Red Web, and you just came out with the second edition of it. It's a really excellent book. I highly recommend it. Um, the Red Web, The Kremlin's War on the Internet uh, by Andrei Soldatov and Irina Baragan. Uh, it's available on Amazon. I think this is uh, a really key moment for uh, Americans to understand how Russian surveillance services actually work. What I found really fascinating about the book, and you started talking about this already, is you describe the emergence of Russia's surveillance state. Um, all the way from uh, the Cold War, the beginnings of the Cold War, to the current moment. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Russia became what you consider a surveillance state, and if you agree that it is, in fact, a surveillance state today? Unfortunately, it is. And uh, to be honest, when we started researching for the book, uh, we uh, were very surprised to find that many things, many technologies and methods uh, we can trace back to 
to the Soviet Union. Uh, and actually, our book starts at, in 1947, uh, long before the Internet was actually developed in, uh, by, uh, in the United States. Why? Well, for, for some reasons. And uh, one of the reasons is that some ideas how to surveil, how to spy on people, how to use uh, surveillance against people as a tool of intimidation, as a, as a kind of uh, warning for people to be to stay quiet, and actually as a way to control uh, people. Well, it was invented and designed well, uh, many years ago, uh, back in the Soviet times. And even the Russian system of online surveillance uh, was the idea, the concept of this system, which is known as a SOAR, which stands for System of Operative uh, Search Measures, uh, was invented and developed in the late 80s by the KGB. And the KGB, in turn, was uh, inspired by the example of Stasi, uh, we wanted to imitate the Stasi approach. The German, the German uh, East, East German, East German security, security service, mm -hmm. famous for being able to intercept almost everything in East Germany. And they had much more advanced uh, system of uh, surveillance. So the KGB wanted to imitate this approach uh, to, make it <clears throat> to make it much more systematic. And they came, came up with this idea of uh, essentially of backdoors, uh, mirroring uh, all kind of traffics to, to the KGB. Well, for some reasons, obvious reasons, the Soviet Union collapsed. This project was delayed and was uh, actually uh, introduced in Russia only in, in, in the mid 1990s, uh, late 1990s. But the problem is that this system has been well developed ever since and actually we got the new development the new update actually this year so it's a it's a very new system uh, in terms of technology but in terms of uh, design it's still soviet it's essentially it's, it's soviet a very intrusive system how exactly does SORM work the idea of SORM is actually very simple. Uh, you have telecommunication companies, uh, you have uh, internet service providers in Russia, thousands of them. Every one of them is required by uh, Russian legislation to install a small black box, which would be connected to the local branch of the FSB. The idea of this black box is to uh, provide access uh, completely unrestricted access uh, for the FSB. And the problem is that uh, in many cases it means that uh, a telecommunication person, uh, telecommun telecommunication company personnel just in install this black box, close the door, seal this door, and have no access to, to, this, uh, to this room with this black box. The idea is that you just provide this access for the FSB and then you know nothing about what kind of information is uh, intercepted by the FSB. So you're telling me that in Russia today, any company, whether they be a Russian company or a foreign company that has operations within Russia, um, is required by law to basically provide access to the Russian security services, the FSB, to whatever information is being transferred on their servers or on their telecommunication networks. Correct. That's fascinating. Um, you know, to what extent have Western companies that have operations in Russia been complying with this legislation? The crucial question here is uh, where you have your servers. 
uh, that's why we have a special legislation, so-called data localization law, which means that the Russian government tries to force global platforms like Twitter, Google, or Facebook uh, to move their servers uh, to Russia. Uh, because to install these black boxes, actually backdoors, you need to have access to servers. Uh, it's not enough to have access to cables. You need to have access to servers because it's the way uh, we have encryption these days. Uh, in many companies, you can have uh, so-called end-to-end encryption, which means that uh, it's impractical to intercept uh, a message uh, on the well. In, in, in a cable, you need to have access to servers. And uh, well, biggest international companies, they uh, were required by the Russian law to move their servers, but they but didn't do that. And uh, so it's a, it's a game uh, we are seeing now. We have this legislation in force uh, since 2015, but it looks like global platforms are still very hesitant uh, and they do not want to move their servers to Russia. So, you know, does Google have their servers in Russia? Uh, what about Facebook, Twitter, all of these social media companies that uh, we're not paying a lot of attention to here in the United States? Um, have they complied with this legislation uh, So, f- as far as you know? As far as we know, because uh, these companies are extremely secretive, uh, they do not comply with this law. Google have some servers, but it's not uh, with uh, these servers are not about personal data, not about content. It's, it's uh, basically uh, their cache uh, servers for Google. So it's about uh, results of uh, your searches and not about your personal information or content of your emails. Uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter, they are in a better position than Google because out of these three companies, only Google has uh, the Moscow office. Uh, so Facebook and uh, it's actually it's quite difficult to put uh, Facebook and Twitter under pressure. Uh, well, but the Russian government uh, tries best and uh, they uh, routinely issue some warnings that say Facebook would be blocked in 2018 uh, with some threats to Twitter. So it happens every day almost. Mm-hmm. But so far it looks like there is no political say decision to, blo- to block these, servers, um, these uh, services in Russia. So information, at least on these particular companies, is still not within the hands of the FSB? Yes, as we, far as we, we, know. We, we hope so. We hope yeah. so. I think what's fascinating about what you're describing and also what you and Irina talk about in your book, Red Web, um, is this almost obsession that the Russian state has today and then the Soviet Union has had before uh, the Russian state during the Cold War with control of information. Uh, And that in many ways what we see happening now with this crackdown on uh, media freedoms for users, uh, this desire to force international companies to allow the Russian security services access to their information through these surveillance system, that this is really part of a very, very long history in Russia, uh, this obsession with controlling information. Um, you know, why is that? How do you understand, you know, how the Kremlin today uh, broadly defined, let's say the Kremlin, the power in, in, in the Kremlin, um, how they think about information, why is this such a threat? Well, for, 
Well, you're absolutely right. It started many years ago, I would say maybe in 20s, uh, maybe even before the revolution. It's uh, it's coming from the from Lenin's idea about the role of the media. When he described the role of uh, newspapers, uh, he said that they the main role is to mobilize masses. And so for him, uh, newspapers was not something about information, it was something about mobilizing people. And of course, that's why for him it was absolutely logical to censor and to block and to uh, actually uh, to shut down all, say, liberal or bourgeois media in, in Soviet Russia. And this uh, thought was absolutely, well, Stalin actually repeated the same thing in in 1930s, uh, and uh, this idea was very, I would say, integral uh, in, uh, to the Soviet Union. And to be honest, in the if we are thinking about the mindset of KGB people, uh, what happened in the 1990s completely proved their point. Uh, they got the war in Chechnya in in the in the mid of uh, 1990s. And for people in the security services and for people in the Kremlin, the only reason we lost, uh, we believe, was because uh, we had uh, unrestricted access to Chechnya for uh, Russian and foreign journalists. So when Putin came to power in 1999, and that was uh, the moment when we got the second Chechen war, the way this war was sold to the Russian uh, people uh, was that we lost the first war because of journalists. So we need to, to do something to protect our information space. That's why very early, actually in 1999, excuse me, in 2000, we got the very first Russian doctrine of information security. And if you read this uh, fascinating document, you can find that they stipulate that uh, foreign media could pose a threat and um, that's why, but, uh, actually, since 2000, we have all these well, talks uh, in the Kremlin and in the security services that we need to control information. That's why we had always this big conflict we have, um, say, between the Russian cybersecurity community and the Western cybersecurity community. Uh, uh, the Western cybersecurity communities have been always insisting on speaking in terms of uh, cybersecurity or cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. The Russians uh, have insisted on uh, talking about information security, meaning the content. Mm -hmm. They always want to control the content because they believe it is much more important than, say, cables or computers. And uh, unfortunately now, lots of people even here started, say, accepting this point of view or even this language. But we need to do something with the content. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour 
a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up 
and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I think just taking back a step um, for a moment, you know, you describe all of these uh, surveillance ser- services that have emerged in Russia today, um, this desire to control the information space, uh, since, particularly since Putin came to power. But, you know, if we're trying to kind of get in the head of Putin himself or people close to him, people in power in Russia today, um, how do they think about intelligence operations more broadly? Because I think what we observe as outsiders in the United States. So it seems that under Putin, the Russian state and the Russian security services have basically become one and the same. That uh, the security apparatus in Russia has penetrated uh, all parts of politics and the political institutions, and there's very little separation. Of course, as you said, uh, when Putin came to power, you knew the surveillance and security was going to be a big issue because Putin was, before that, the head of the FSB and had a long career in the FSB um, as, as a young man and until he basically became the head of state in Russia. Uh, but where does, you know, what's the bigger picture here? How does the Russian state today under Putin think about intelligence services, intelligence operations? Where does domestic surveillance fit into all of this? Well, the problem here is uh, that Putin, uh, he loves to present himself as a direct successor to Andropov, and meaning that Andropov uh, was a long-standing uh, chief of the KGB, and then he was promoted to be head of the state. But basically, And that was before Yeltsin? Yes, it was actually in, uh, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. The thing is that... Uh, Actually, it's not true because uh, Andropov was not a trained KGB guy. He was not. He was not a trained KGB officer. He was a political appointee. He was uh, actually uh, an official at uh, the Communist Party, sent by the political party, by the Communist Party, to oversee. Uh, the KGB, yes, he became a director of the KGB, but essentially by his training, he was a political guy. But with Putin, very first time in our history, we have a guy who is a trained security agent and he is the head of the state, which means uh, that when he speaks to his uh, security services, uh, there is no gap, there is no distance at all. Uh, they share the same mentality, the same prejudices, the same background, they speak the same language. They speak in 
in the language of threats. And actually, if you look at the way Putin speaks about sensitive things, like, for example, uh, the development of the Internet, he sees the Internet in terms of threats. First of all, he, actually, he, he talks about everything in terms of threats. And it's a very, say, I would say it's a KGB mentality. That's one thing. The second thing is uh, that uh, we have an essential problem of Russian bureaucracy. If you have a new head of state, uh, for him it's always difficult and tricky to find his um, way to find new people to uh, give them prominent positions. And uh, it was a problem for Yeltsin. He solved this problem, say, using regional approach. He just uh, brought to Moscow lots of people from his uh, his, uh, his town, uh, Yekaterinburg. Uh, Putin did the same. He actually he brought to Moscow lots of people from St. Petersburg, but he also believed that he could trust only people from the security mm -hmm. services. And he made them, um, in a way, the new Russian aristocracy. That's why the chief of the FSB back when, Nikolai Patrushev, coined this uh, term the new nobility. Uh, he actually uh, used this term to uh, to name his uh, his own people. And the that's people of course the, of title, the title of your first book. Yes, that's why it's it's not what, it was not chosen by us. I mean that was uh, that uh, that term was coined by Nikolai Patrushev. And of course, when you have a head of the state who could rely, or he believes he could rely, only on people from the security services. They bring to uh, to the government a very special uh, mentality, and this mentality is suspicious by definition. And very early, already in uh, say in the early 2000s, we we understood that this because we are journalists, so we are outsiders. So we need to talk to people inside, and it was very clear from the beginning uh, that Putin wanted to change this. He actually he started raising defenses around the government, around the parliament. His idea was, actually, he made uh, the government apparatus very suspicious mm. of any kind of questions uh, and of any kind of outside expertise. Uh, he got rid of uh, external expertise in the parliament, for example. And we got this very interesting thing. So if you ask a question, uh, the immediate reaction of Putin and his people to ask you back, why you are asking this question. Maybe you are paid, or maybe you ask it to ask this question. Uh, and of course, it's it's a very well strange way to govern your country, and uh, that's why uh, we we actually we ended up where we ended. Uh, but un unfortunately, he still believes that these people are the most loyal. Probably, they are, he underst he understood now they could be corrupt, but he still believes they are the only people he could trust. So I want to read uh, a few sentences from uh, your book that talk exactly about this mentality that is so pervasive in the Russian state, um, under Putin specifically. Uh, in your new edition, you had a chapter looking at the interference, Russian interference in the U.S. elections in 2016. And in that last chapter, you write, Putin doesn't believe in mankind, nor does he believe in a benign society. The concept that people could voluntarily come together to do something for the common good. Those who try to do something, in, in this view, not directed by the government, were either spies, paid agents of foreign hostile forces, or corrupt. In other words, paid agents of corporations. And then you say that political or civic activity is seen as a dirty business by definition, and nobody could be trusted, and that was the main message. 
And this cynicism was Putin's gift to America. So I thought this was a really profound statement where you describe this very paranoid, suspicious mentality uh, of the Russian government today uh, that first and foremost targets and victimizes its own population by surveilling the population, uh, by repressing independent media, forcing journalists like yourselves, uh, like yourself and Irina to constantly be changing jobs. I think at this point, these stories are, are unfortunately very common uh, where we hear about journalists either being murdered or harassed or um, in other ways hurt in Russia today. By this, this jump that you make in this, in this passage I read to the United States, can you talk a little bit about that? The, the cynicism was Putin's gift to America. What do you mean by that? I mean that uh, he tried this uh, this concept very, to, to be honest, very effectively in Russia because we we still live in a very confused post-Soviet, post-totalitarian society, and basically it means that we do not have any trust in institutions. Uh, it's uh, it's a very uh, widespread thing uh, that for ordinary Russians to believe that, uh, well media matter, uh, freedom of expression matter, or they believe in, in the parliament. That's not the case. Nobody actually trusts them. And the Putin tried to undermine the credibility of these institutions for years. Actually, even his parliament uh, was a joke, and it was accepted by the Kremlin that people would see his parliament as a joke. Because the idea was to have, if you have this image of, this, of the Russian society, uh, Putin would love us to see it this way, but you have the population and a strong leader, nothing in between. And that makes him, him almost inevitable, because when you speak to ordinary Russians, uh, the usual um, question you face if you say something about uh, corruptness or the way things run by, the, by, by, uh, by Putin, the usual question is, who else? We have only Putin. There is no one. Uh, all, all the rest are just corrupt or they're too small or too greedy. So at least we know this guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think to this extent, his, um, his concept was really, really effective. In the United States, I think he's... Of course, his first idea was to try this uh, not in the United States, but in Ukraine. Yes. And it was really effective because, well, for obvious reasons... Uh, Ukraine is also a uh, post-totalitarian and very confused society with many problems. And we share the same background. We speak almost the same language. Lots of people understand Russian, can speak Russian. We all have this legacy of uh, the Second World War, which means a lot to lots of people because almost every family uh, lost someone during the war, which means uh, some arguments used by Russian propaganda, like accusation of fascism, very emotional and very strong. Right, this this has really become the meta narrative of Russian state media today. Absolutely. That to tie any enemy of the state, as, as whoever that may be in the particular moment, as a fascist, uh, a Nazi, and all of these things. And we saw this very very clearly um, with Ukraine, as you're saying. Yeah. But it was also based on the idea of mistrust. Mm -hmm. So you cannot trust Yanukovych, that's fine, but you cannot trust these uh, revolutionaries because they should be corrupt just because they are, uh, because we try to do something in public sphere. They should be corrupt, they should be paid by someone. We do not trust them. So that's, uh, that was the concept uh, Putin then tried to uh, actually to uh, export to the United States. But you already have some 
well, some problems of trust here. And uh, with the media, with, uh, with many institutions. So he didn't actually invent this narrative, but he tried to exploit what you already have. And well, to some, effect, uh, to some extent, it was quite effective. So how exactly did that happen? You say, you know, Putin, and I think it's interesting that you say Putin and not the Russian state or the Kremlin. Um, so I guess two questions for you. I mean, is it really Putin who is the puppet master uh, behind whether that be uh, Russia's disinformation campaigns in Ukraine or in Germany or in the United States, um, the hacking uh, and the email theft that we saw in the United States, all of these uh, seemingly coordinated attacks on Western institutions to make people doubt the legitimacy of those institutions, uh, to make people trust those institutions less. Um, is Putin really the puppet master behind all of this? Or, I mean, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of, is the Russian state really that well coordinated under the, the czar, one could say? What we need to understand here is uh, what you described right now and, and listed uh, looks like a, for say for the Western uh, for the Western excuse me audience it looks like a list of uh, offensive operations, but for people inside of Russia it looks absolutely different. Uh, the Kremlin really believe that they are on defensive. They believe that they are on, well under constant attack and. Uh, and that actually explains why Putin was personally involved in many of these stories. Ukraine was seen by Putin as a personal attack on him and on political stability of his enemy. Meaning Ukraine's desire to join uh, the EU eventually and yeah. sign the free trade agreement. It was seen in as an offensive operation by, by the West uh, with the goal to undermine his influence and uh, finally to undermine the political stability in his country. Uh, Panama Papers expose was seen as a direct attack on him and his personal friends, and he needed to fight back. So many of these things uh, were seen as a direct attack on him. And some things you just cannot do, uh, say, without Putin, especially uh, the United States. It's, um, it's a very emotional topic for him from the very beginning. And just remember that when he became the president, he tried to please uh, George W. Bush for actually for some years. He was the very first uh, foreign leader to make a call after 9-11. He gave up some military facilities in Cuba and Vietnam to please uh, the United States because he wanted to be treated as equal, to, he wanted to be respected. And the moment he understood or, or he decided but he was betrayed, that triggered his emotional reaction. All these old conspiracy theories, all these old paranoia, just immediately he felt that finally he, he had a proof. It was true. They are always plotting against me. And um, that since then, it's a very personal and very emotional for him. So what you're basically outlining is this notion that you know, Putin's view of the international order is uh, a West that is constantly trying to undermine Russia's interests, that is, you know, starting uh, revolutions in Ukraine, the Arab Spring, in the Middle East, um, and eventually this is something that the West will try to do in Moscow. Is that is that really the main fear? Absolutely. And what we need to understand that uh, in Russia, the picture is a bit 
well, maybe primitive, maybe too simple, but we're always uh, talking about, not about, say, Germany and Russia, not about UK and Russia. We are talking about the West and Russia. We are talking about the whole of the West and Russia because it's, uh, first of all, it's good for, for the Russians to think, well, well, actually, we present our Russian civilization, so that make us almost equal with the Western civilization. But it also make it easier if you want to, to find proofs what the Western countries plotting against Russia. You always, well, out of all these big conglomerate of the countries, you can't find some proofs and, and feel into the Russian propaganda and say, look, just another, pro another proof, another sign of a big conspiracy against us. And so you said that everything that uh, Russia has done, this election meddling, interference um, through disinformation, other forms of uh, interference in other countries' affairs, is a revenge war, basically, uh, from perhaps from Putin's point of view. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of retaliation. And that makes um, it so difficult to actually to understand the Russian foreign policy because it's always reactive. They sort of react to things. Always in the same manner, but still they react. And uh, sometimes their reaction might be brilliant in terms of tactics. Sometimes it's, uh, it's awful, uh, like it was really crazy to invest, actually, to spend $50 billion uh, f uh, on Sochi Olympic Games and destroy everything, actually, next week, uh, interfering into Maidan and into Ukraine. But still, it's very react uh, reactive. So from that point of view, so from that point of view, the Russian interference in the U.S. elections, what was that revenge for? What was that a reaction to? It was revenge and reaction on Panama Papers expose. It was quite clear, uh, and we tried to trace what triggered this reaction. And finally, we, uh, we came to this moment in the early April uh, when journalists working on Panama Papers sent their request to the Kremlin asking for comments. And that triggered very emotional reaction. Immediately we got some statements. Actually, this uh, investigation was commented by the Kremlin even before the publication of Panama Papers, which is a very unusual way for the Kremlin to comment on these stories because the usual way for the Kremlin is just never to comment on this, to let the story die. In this case, it was very, you might see it was really, really personal. Putin personally commented on this story. He felt that he needed to defend his friend. So for Putin, the Panama paper leak and the uh, expose that followed was not something that was done by a network of independent journalists. It was really a Western ploy to try to take down him and those close to him. Not just the Western plot, but Hillary Clinton's plot. There was some strange miscalculation, and I think it was a kind of intelligence failure from the Russian side. But it looks like Putin was briefed about Podesta emails uh, by uh, the beginning of April. What, April 20 2016. 2016. And because the hackers were in the system of Podesta in, on March 18. Uh, so the thing is, what happened next, uh, that a very strange conspiracy plot uh, was construed with uh, Goldman Sachs, Hillary Clinton's people, and journalists working on Panama Papers. So in, in Putin's mind, it was all part of uh, this big conspiracy against him. And because he believed that Hillary Clinton was personally, personally involved, well, he believed that now he is a kind of um, justified to fight back. 
So a lot of information has been coming out recently about the extent and the breadth of Russian interference in the U.S. elections. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that recently uh, Google and Twitter and Facebook have all been uh, asked and forced to come testify in front of the U.S. Congress. And some, some of the numbers they reveal in their testimonies, I think, I think are quite shocking. Um, and I don't know if it's really the full extent of it. Uh, Facebook said that 126 million individuals uh, likely saw the ads and content that was put out uh, by this, uh, the International Research Agency, is that what it's called? The, That's right. The so-called troll factory um, in Russia. And that this was a targeted set of campaigns on some specific U.S. states, um, but also targeted across users on Facebook. I think this is a really shocking figure, and that uh, about $100,000 was spent specifically to promote certain ads that had uh, divisive content about race or um, sexual orientation, LGBTQ rights, etc. For Twitter, they estimated that almost 3,000 of their accounts were uh, these fake, inauthentic accounts, also linked to the troll factory um, in Russia. And uh, similarly for Google, I mean, they they have also come up with numbers about thousands of videos being posted on YouTube, of course, that's that's owned by Google, again, linked to the same troll factory. So I think as all this information is coming out, I I guess my question to you, again, is, you know, is this really being coordinated not by by the Kremlin and by Putin himself? If this is really a personal revenge plot that he's carrying out against the United States and perhaps against Hillary Clinton specifically? Or is this kind of an uncoordinated uh, entrepreneurial attempt by various proxy organizations uh, that are acting on behalf of the Kremlin, but not necessarily at the full uh, direction of, of Putin himself? Which one is it? Well, the problem is that with proxies, uh, say, uh, with Internet Research Agency, and their founder, uh, its founder, uh, actually happens to be uh, in very personal relations with uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, so I think that actually, given the fact that these proxies were acting, um, well, out of any bureau- Russian bureaucracy, not at the level of, and they contact with the government, not at the level of, uh, say, uh, federal agencies or the ministries, but uh, they have a contacts at the level of the administration of the president. So my guess uh, is uh, that it would be absolutely impossible to do this kind of effort without say, uh, san- a sanction from the very top. It's just impossible. Hmm. Well, I guess uh, the investigations in the United States will keep going and we'll get more information about that. Um, but, you know, I want to, before before we sign off, um, bring up two more things I want to get your thoughts on. One that you write about extensively in your book as well is, of course, Edward Snowden. Uh, I think the attention to the U.S. attempt to surveil the population really uh, started with the with the Snowden leaks. Uh, of course, Snowden um, is now living in Russia, where he went and sought asylum, um, and he's been there for a few years now. So, what kind of figure is Snowden now in Russian politics? You know, what what does he do? Uh, <laughs> in Russia today, you know, does he interact with people? You know, what what is he doing? He's a sort of ghost. A ghost. Yeah, it looks like he is there, but because he is um, banned from talking to 
Russian journalist or Moscow-based foreign journalist, and he speaks only to journalists coming specifically to interview him, so they are all approved in advance. So he is uh, almost nowhere. Uh, nobody can talk to him. Nobody, nobody's seen him. I and uh, it looks like a kind of uh, uh, strategy uh, to be seen uh, that just out of the United States. I'm not in the United States. I'm not in Russia specifically. I'm just somewhere. And uh, while he tried to face, actually to counter some of the criticisms, and uh, he became a bit more critical of the Russian way to control the Internet uh, recently, which is a good thing. But unfortunately, he still... I mean, the most sensitive thing about him and Russia is uh, how his uh, revelations were used and exploited by the Russian government, promoting some crazy ideas about, uh, about uh, internet uh, offensive uh, on internet freedoms. For example, we got this data localization law uh, forcing global platforms to move their servers into Russia under pretext of uh, protecting Russian uh, personal data from, say, NSA spying. So they obviously mm. they exploited Snowden revelations. Uh, they even wanted to invite him to the Russian parliament to testify. Finally, it never happened, but still they used his, uh, his, uh, his revelations. The problem is that Snowden never tried to comment on this. He never tried to comment on how his revelations were used by the Russian authorities. Mm -hmm. So he's in a very strange situation and a kind of limbo. He's not part of the Russian political landscape. He's still there. And nobody knows what might happen to him. And his latest uh, attempt to get out was uh, actually last year. And uh, he actually, as far as I understand, his people, uh, they actually hoped that uh, this Oliver Stone movie could help him mm -hmm. uh, to get... Um, well, something out of Obama, well, his next, uh, his last days uh, in the White House, but instead, uh, well, uh, Chelsea Manning was uh, was pardoned and 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 released. So, uh, so he was hoping for uh, a pardon from Obama because yes, of the film yes. of Oliver Stone, the sort of. Uh, I could say vindicated some of what he did. Yes, actually, that was his hope, and they tried to, to launch some campaign here in the United States, and uh, with calls to Obama to do something good in his last days in the White House. It never happened. Mm -hmm. So I think now he's in a limbo. And uh, to be honest, I still feel pretty sorry for him because I think he's a kind of idealist uh, who put himself in uh, absolutely impossible uh, situation. So you think that he actually had good intentions. There's many people uh, that still suspect that he was a Russian spy from the very beginning. No, I don't believe it. And it I, I don't think so. But now he's being used in this very interesting way by the Russian state to justify increasingly more repressive uh, information laws uh, because they're held, holding up Snowden and the revelations about NSA spying as the sort of um, you know, look at the United States and what they're doing. We have to protect ourselves. We have to clamp down on information. Uh, so in a way, he's become a bit of a useful idiot, wouldn't you say? Uh, it looks like he, uh, he still he tried to resist. He never appeared on, say, Russia Today, RT, or Sputnik. Uh, he was never used directly by the Russian propaganda. And of course, we would love to. Uh, so he put some restraints. He said, I think he said no in some cases. But of course, uh, he's trapped in this situation. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that you live surrounded by these people with almost no option to get out, well, it's, it's tough. So I, th I think lastly, you know, the big question, I think, for most people in the United States is, 
you know, where's this all going? You know, uh, Russia has, I think, taken this uh, very risky step to strategically interfere with what, what you say direction from the very top from Putin himself in the U.S. presidential elections. Uh, now there's lots of fears about this happening again and maybe Russia not being the main actor, maybe China or you know, Iran, any other state being able to use the same set of tools. Uh, you know, where where do you think this is all headed? I mean, are we going to be living in a world in the very near future where there really isn't a way to protect democratic processes anymore, where we should actually just expect interference from uh, foreign governments like Russia and others, uh, that this whole era of integrity in elections is, is pretty much over. We, in a way, are stuck in this old Cold War scheme. We still think that if, say, during the Cold War we have uh, we had how many uh, nuclear powers? Five, seven? Uh, and uh, we still believe that in the new age of cyber warfare it should be about these countries. The problem is that lots of cyber experts told me that these days to get to this level of cyber capabilities, even for the countries with very bad economy, it needs only five years, mm-hmm. which means that lots of, of countries could be provoked to think that actually we can do a lot uh, well, with uh, very limited risks for them. And of course, it's a very frightening picture for me, also because only now we are getting to the stage that to the, to the moment that with information operations, and because we are, you, yeah, actually we are talking not about cyber operations, we are, we are, we are talking about information operation. That's right. And even if we are talking about hacking, it's not hacking into some critical systems, we are talking about email accounts. The problem is that what might happen if uh, we get to the moment when these things would be combined? I mean, uh, the real attack on something real in critical infrastructure of the country combine it with an information operation. That w- would be really, really something. And uh, I think that's, that's what's coming next. And uh, it could be really terrifying, unfortunately. It's certainly uh, a bleak pic- picture. And uh, I guess the, ol- the main hope is, uh, at least in the United States, now there's so much attention on these issues that you know, we're going to take this more seriously going forward. Uh, at least that's the hope. You know, Andre, just before uh, I let you go, I just want to thank you, not just for coming here and talking to us, but for doing the work that you do in Russia. I don't think that's easy. Um, I think you're in a very difficult situation. But, you know, thank you for doing the work that you do, uh, for taking the risks that you probably have to take to continue to provide us with good journalism and good information about a topic that uh, we don't know very much about. Um, in the United States or, or oh. elsewhere in the West. So well, thanks thank you. again. <laughs> it's a pleasure having thank you. you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to my colleague Alina for taking over the podcast and making me not have to deal with any of it. Our music is as ever performed by the one, the only, the right, the honorable Sophia Yan. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast. So come on, if you haven't tweeted us yet and told the world how much you love us, and if you haven't left us that rating on the iTunes store, get on it because we need your help. We don't advertise. We don't do any of the things to promote the podcast. We only have you guys. Thanks for listening.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.